Amen. Thank you, Austin. So good morning. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here. Uh, our scripture reading this morning uh, is coming from two places in 1 John, chapter 3, and then we're going to skip to chapter 4 and read from both of those, and then also from Galatians chapter 5, uh, the list of the fruit of the Spirit there. So you can follow along in your worship folder if you'd like. It'll be on the screen behind me or on uh, your screen at home, or you can grab one of the pew Bibles and try to turn back and forth, but we are going to come from a number of different places this morning. So uh, hear the word of the Lord. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has been has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he does not, for he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see. I'm sorry, let me say that again. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things as law. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're finishing the series we've been doing. Uh, we typically, if you're new to our church, uh, we typically make our way through different books of the Bible. That's our general pattern, and we've been making our way through... First uh, John. And so we're finishing that series on First John, but we're also beginning a new series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, talking in both cases about love. Because in First John, First John's all about how you know whether you really know God, how you know whether or not you really have come to share in his life, that you're a genuine um, follower of Jesus who has spiritual life pulsating through you. And the letter is a series of tests to determine whether or not you really believe. But the final exam, right? You take tests all through the semester and then there's the final exam. The final exam in 1 John about whether or what the, you know, the validity of your faith is love. Listen to him again. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. That's how you know that you're no longer spiritually dead but now spiritually alive is because you're, you're loving. You're, you're having this impulse to meet other people's needs ahead of your own. Or 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We could go on and on. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, John says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen whom he has not seen. Now, you could go on and on from 1 John. And you believe, John says, only to the degree that you love. And so before we leave 1 John, we need to talk 
in depth about love because it is uh, probably the most, it stands out among all of the themes in that letter. Now, but also at the same time, turning to the fruit of the Spirit, that is the evidences that you are spiritually healthy, that you're spiritually alive, the things that come out of the life of someone who is truly spiritually alive, the evident, those evidences, there's a spiritual power at work in you, and the very first thing, the very first evidence that is true of you is that you're a person who loves. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the rest. Because all of the rest, peace and patience, kindness and so forth, they all flow from love. That's why love is first there. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. All of the fruits of the Spirit show up there in that famous chapter, probably the the penultimate chapter about love in all of the Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is actually a better indication of the status of your relationship with God than the gifts of the Spirit are. It's a better indication of the Spirit's power in your life than the gifts of the Spirit are. At least that's the argument that Jonathan Edwards made. And love is the very first thing, because without love, then nothing else in the spiritual life counts. Nothing else. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 again, if I speak in tongues but have not love, I am nothing. If I have prophetic powers and all knowledge and all faith, but I have not love, I am I'm nothing. He says, if I give away all I have, deliver my body to be burned in the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. See, people of faith who do not love are walking walking. To have faith but it not be working itself out in your life in love means that there's, there's some disconnect. The wires have, have, been, have been disconnected from the way they're supposed to work. There's something desperately wrong because love is the final exam. Love is the ultimate test. Love is the ultimate, the ultimate test of your, of your true faith in God. And so we want to talk about love this morning. And we're going to do so under these three headings. We're going to talk about the need for love. And then the definition of love as it's given to us here. And then, of course, ending with the power for love. Because John wants us to see all three of those things. Okay? And so let's walk through this text together along those headings. First, talking about the need for love. And this is, we're going to do this every week because you see... We're calling this character in crisis. In other words, how do we, how do we meet? I mean, raise your hand if you're looking forward to the next three months of all of the political stuff that's going to be going on. Maybe some, but most of us just dread it, and, and it's just overwhelming. And I think what, what our world needs more than anything else is, an, is people who are committed to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and all of those things. And so we want to talk about in light of everything around us, in light of the crisis of, of the times that we live in, what it looks like for us to be people who push out uh, and push, push into our society with character because what is needed is character. And so we need, there's a need for love because the opposite of love is fear. Now that might surprise you, but it is what both John and Paul say. So let's look at John first, John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for whoever fears has not been perfected by love. And so you see how he contrasts fear and love there. He says you can't love if you're afraid. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to live for someone else and not for yourself. Think about that. I mean, to really, to really uh, intend your whole life to meet the needs of others and not worry about your own needs, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do that. And if you're afraid, you won't have what it takes. You have to be loved into loving. Now, we'll get back to that, but that is the teaching. And if you're afraid, it's because you don't know that you're loved the way God intends for you to. 
And so the dynamic between love and fear is a zero-sum game. Fear drives out love. Love drives out fear. You decrease fear. You increase your capacity for love and, and vice versa, okay? This is how this works. Now, Paul says the same thing. In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's an important verse. We didn't read it, but, but it, it's really, it really is significant. So he says the opposite of fear is love. Not fear, but power and love instead. And that's an interesting thing because we typically don't think about this, that the opposite of fear would be love and the opposite of love would be fear. But it really is the case. And here's where this really hits home is that the country is acting in such self-destructive ways. We are facing some very real problems, but we seem to lack the collective character to address those problems in productive ways. So if you look around, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, these things, which are the works of the flesh, just ahead of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, those things and not the fruit of the Spirit dominate, dominate our cultural landscape. They dominate our discourse, which is why we can't seem to get anywhere. And so the solution to violence and bigotry and partisanship is love. But we've lost our will to love because we're so afraid. And, we're, and, we're, and, we're, and I've just watched the nation over the last six months become more and more and more afraid. And as we've become more and more and more afraid, we've become less and less and less and less capable of love. There's so much fear. So much fear in the world today still, which is why there's so little love. And I wonder if knowing that might lead us to empathy. By that I mean that when you turn on the news, or t- tune into the news, and you see the protests and the riots and the outraged, that our response might be to not become outraged ourselves, but to find compassion, because what you're seeing is fear. You're seeing people who have been given over to a spirit of fear. The world is in the grip of fear. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, in his mind, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I wonder, could we see the same? Paul, in that verse that I quoted a minute ago, calls it a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear because it's a spiritual problem with a spiritual solution. The world has no way on its own to not be afraid. And I wonder if knowing that might not lead us to our mission. To remember that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, it cannot. And so when you lash out and you rant and complain, you're, you're giving in to the spirit of fear. You're increasing the fear. You're becoming afraid. No, what we need is a band of guerrilla soldiers who are able to keep their cool and be level-headed, reasonable, empathetic, winsome, and truly visionary because they've been shaped by a different otherworldly ideology and they're living with a spiritual power. To not be afraid, but to love instead. Fear is a spiritual problem. It's, it's a sin. It's a symptom of unbelief, John writes to us here. And so the solution is faith. And the only way for the world to not be afraid is for people of faith to not be afraid. And to love. And so I really think there are two lessons. And the first is, if fear and love are opposites, then the more selfishness, uh, the more full of self-concern you are, the more afraid you'll be. If you only focus on yourself and your needs and your own well-being at the, at the expense of others and being thoughtful about what others need, you'll only become more and more afraid. Because fear, here's the way this works, fear makes you selfish, but selfishness increases your fear. 
to more fear, more selfishness, more selfishness, more fear. Around and around you go, you get stuck in the loop. And that is why Paul calls it a spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1, 7. It's slavery to fear and selfishness that reinforce one another. Over and over and over again, you get caught in this loop. And so if you want to fight, being afraid, if you want to break that loop, the way you break that loop, ultimately, of course, Jesus has to come with his spirit to break it. But, but where you are, if you want to do something about it, if you want to fight, if you feel yourself giving in to fear and you want to fight being afraid, then stop thinking about yourself. For just one minute, break the cycle. Choose love. Don't wait until you're not afraid. Just love. And what I think the text says is, is if you will just give yourself to love, then in the process of loving, you'll actually become less afraid. Because fear and love are opposites. And there's a great need. There's a great need for love. But secondly, that leads us to this consideration. In order to love, then, we have to know what love is. We need the right definition of love. Because I think this is really where there's a crisis in our culture over we don't even really agree upon what it is to love anymore. And so the text gives us this too. And I love the song that we sang. This is love, John says twice. Now that's my paraphrase, but that's what it means. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so here's the the truth. We would not know what love is apart from what God has done for us in Jesus. And this also makes sense, I think, of what we're seeing across the country. It is the end result. What we're going through right now as a nation is the end result of our hollowed out definitions of love. We could go so many directions here. I mean, I really labored over exactly, you know, what 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 to hit on. But if you want to understand, and of course... I went for the more, uh, the more brainy, intellectual uh, thing because that's kind of me, so forgive me. But if you want to understand uh, the world we're living in, you should read about Martin Heidegger, <laughs> who's a German philosopher who said, and this is an oversimplification, but this is about 100 years ago, he said that our problem, that humanity's problem is our inauthenticity, that we aren't true to ourselves, that we allow societal expectations to determine our, our decisions and the way we live our lives. And what we need to do is to go on a search inwardly for our true selves and then live all of life as an experiment in self-expression of what we find to be true uh, on the inside. And this, you know, so this is where all these phrases that you hear, be true to yourself, live your truth. This, this is the idea of authenticity, which, is, which has come to just dominate our culture. It's actually translation of a German word that means being one's own. Being about you. You be you. And these ideas are now the water we all swim in. I mean, really, it is, it is amazing to see how, how the, the human heart already bent in on itself because of sin has just latched onto these philosophical ideas. And, a, and we've just created a culture that just really, you know, just encourages uh, this whole thing. But here's what we see, that it's, it's not hard to see how incompatible that way of living is with what the Bible defines as love. They are, in fact, incompatible because love has, love has something other, you know, to, to do entirely differently than, than that description that Heidegger gives there. Love, love, in his definition, has just become another way to express yourself, which is to say what we love, typically in our culture, is the experience of being loved. 
We love the love others show us, especially the people in the groups that build out our own identity, what we want to feel like is true of ourselves. Now, that's deep. So let me put it this way. In the age of authenticity, love has ironically become a you-for-me demand. You-for-me. And here's the experiment that proves this. Confront the idea of authenticity and see what happens. Say... Sexual identity is fluid, isn't, isn't fluid. Just say that and see what happens. I mean, there's no category in 21st century America where that is seen as a loving thing to do. It is phobic hate speech. And it's immoral. Because we've become so warped in our definitions of what love is. John comes along and says, no, love is not a you for me demand. It's something entirely different. Love is a me-for-you sacrifice. This is love, he says. He laid down his life for us. This is love. Not our love for God, but his love for us. And how does God love us? And here's where Christianity is completely different from any other religion the world has ever known, or actually where it stops being religion. He says God loves with a me-for-you love. In every other religion... The God or the ideal demands you for me devotion. You sacrifice for me. You give your life for me. You strive. You prove yourself. And maybe you can get what you need to have a good life. But Christianity begins with God showing me for love. Me for you love. And John says God's me for you love is best illustrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is love, John says, the cross. He says it twice. 316, 410, both times. This is love, and then he goes on to describe the cross. Jesus gave his life so that we might live. He endured the darkness of God's wrath so that we could live in the sunshine of his smile. Chapter 4, verse 11, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, if that is the way God has loved us, then it is the way that we should show love to one another. He laid down his life for us, We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, chapter 3, verse 16. So for a Christian, our whole lives are patterned after the me-for-you love of Jesus on the cross. Because, of course, the cross wasn't the only time Jesus loved like this. His whole life was an exercise in me-for-you love. If you've been to a person of Jesus study uh, here in our church, you're already aware that there's a pattern that emerges in in the Gospels as you behold Jesus loving others. And it looks like this, Joe, you ready? There we go. This is, this is what we draw and what we really meditate on together in that study. And this is the heart of God in saving us. If you, if you follow along from the bottom to the top, it begins with him seeing. He saw us in our sin and our misery. And, and, and in seeing us, the miracle was that his heart did not turn away from us, but instead his heart broke over our pain over our sadness, over our our sin. He was moved with compassion to help us, and out of that compassion, he acted. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live an obedient life and die upon the cross for our sins. But what we see in Jesus goes beyond just what God has done. We get a glimpse into what God is like. This this this, This is a diagram that shows us the very heart of God in Jesus as he went through his life living and loving this way day after day, with everyone he, he met, Jesus went through life seeing. He was able to get outside of himself and incarnate with people and, and seek to understand things from their perspective. And his seeing led him to compassion. He was 
constantly being inwardly moved by, their, by the heartbreaks and the needs of other, others. And his empathy always led to some kind of action, either a miracle or a sermon or a confrontation. And so these are the three steps of love. It's very practical. This is love, as we see it in Jesus. Now let's personalize it for a minute and say this. God sees you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He counts your tears. He's fully aware of the pain that is the part of your past and understands the way that it gets carried with you into the present. And he's empathetic. He's compassionate, as in Hebrews, that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He actually knows better than any of us because he never gave in. And so he's not aggravated. He's not throwing up his hands when you screw up. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. And therefore, he is actively, he is actively right now in this moment bringing salvation. He is active in saving you. He's at work in your life right now, right here in this moment where you meet him because this is his very heart. And so if God has loved us like that, chapter four, verse 11, then we ought to also love one another in the same way. We are to live toward others with the same heart, with this beating heart of Jesus inside of us because that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get the beating heart of Jesus in you, the spirit empowering you to live with God's me for you love. And so John is actually very helpful to us here because he goes on to describe in great detail what, it, what me for you love looks like. And I've never noticed it before, but there in chapter three, verses 16 through 18, this pattern that we see in the gospels true of Jesus shows up there as well. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in, I mean, excuse me, in word or talk, but in deed or and in truth. And so even there, it starts with seeing, with living slowly enough and being self-forgetful enough to not miss the people around you, really seek to understand where they're coming from and the fears and the worries and the hopes and the desires that are driving them, live compassionately towards them. The opposite of which is what John warns about, closing off your heart, closing your heart against. Don't do that. Allow yourself to feel. The word actually, the word translated there is actually not heart. It's strange that they translate it that way. The word is gut. He's saying, live from your feelings. Love is hard, but closing your heart is a you for me move. The hardest part of love is vulnerability. It's the ultimate me for you sacrifice to keep showing up and to keep putting your heart out there even though it might keep getting trampled on. So John doesn't skip that part. He doesn't say if there's somebody in need, then be generous. He says, no, the main thing when you see somebody in need is don't close your heart off. Don't stop feeling. Don't stop entering into the pain of their situation. And then, of course, make sure that what you feel leads to some kind of action, that you love with more than just talk, that you, because you measure the sincerity or the truth of your love by your action. That's what that last bit there means. And so seeing, which leads to compassion, which leads to action. Now here's one application in talking about the definition of love. Let's be careful not to mistake like for love. Like is about feelings. Love is what you do. You can love someone you like, but you can also love someone until you grow to like them. Because here's the thing. If you behave as if you love someone, you will actually come to not only love them, but to eventually like them. 
I mean, the, the, both C.S. Lewis and the Bible agree. And whenever C.S. Lewis and the Bible agree, you ought to really listen. Because it probably is important. And C.S. Lewis said, listen, the, the way the Christian ethic is to love people even when you don't feel like loving them. Because it's the process of loving them which you come to feel the affections of love. And now more than ever, in this time of panic and fear, the world needs people who choose love. And that's the promise of these texts, that we can be shaped into a people with the spiritual power to love and not to fear. But how? Where does that power come from? Well, I can tell you it doesn't come from me or you. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. That is, it does not grow in the natural soil of our hearts. It's something supernatural. Chapter 4, verses 8, 7, and 8. Love is from God, John says. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so everything that has to do with God has the mark of love on it. That's what John means. And if it is not love, then it is not from God because God is love. So don't look within for the power for me, for you, love. But it doesn't come from the love of others for me either. Because though they may love me well, no one can love me perfectly. And what John says is that it takes perfect love to cast out fear. As they say, God is love, but love is not God. And so the love of a spouse or a child or a friend cannot take the place of God in your life. The love in the best marriage or the best friendship is not constant enough or pure enough to give you the strength to keep going. The very best you-for-me relationship cannot produce me-for-you love. And by the way, if you can feel yourself closing off your heart against someone... Because there's pain in the relationship, because you're weary of how, um, how um, uneven it may feel, let me suggest something. If you can feel yourself tempted to do that, you should ask if it is because at some point in the past you made their love into a God and that idol is letting you down. No, the only way to be the kind of person that John is describing here is to be warming your heart at the fire of God's love. We love because he first loved us. The energy for my love is God's love for me. Faith first, then love. This is the way it works in the Christian life. Or let me say it like this. God's love has to be the love in your life. There's a curious thing in the translation of chapter 4, verse 18. If you look at that verse one more time, there's a definite article in the original language that doesn't get translated. I don't really know why. Maybe because it's clunky, but this is how it should literally read. Okay, It should be, if you follow, there's no fear in the love. But the perfect love casts out all fear, for whoever fears has not been perfected by the love. And so I think what John's saying is there's love and then there's the love. And only the love can make you not afraid. So fear has to do with punishment, it says. We shrink back from God's love because we still fear that he, he will eventually tire of us and will treat us as our sins deserves. But John says that's not possible. Because he loved us, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins there, chapter 4, verse 10. So me for you, love, is ultimately the language of substitution. And that's what you see. Jesus Christ died upon the cross in our place to take upon himself the punishment that was due to all who believe in him. He endured our hell. You know the place in the Bible where it says, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can uh, kill your body. Be afraid of those who can kill your body and then cast, be afraid of the one who can kill your body and then cast your soul into hell. What he means there is, is, you know, some terrible things ended up happening to 
his followers. Some of them were tied to horses and ripped apart, literally. Some of them were lit on fire and used as candles in the Roman circus. Some of them had holes drilled into their heads and then molten liquid was poured in while they were still alive. They faced gruesome horrors and yet Jesus says, Jesus says, that's nothing compared to what hell's like. And yet here's the one who not only endured hell for his own sins, he had no sins. He endured my hell and your hell and the hell of everyone he saved in the span of three hours upon a cross. Can you imagine the torture? And yet it says he gladly went. The costly love of Jesus is what can quiet the fears of your heart. He took our place and bore our wrath. The wrath of God was poured out. The hellish wrath of God poured out against him, which means for you and me, all that is left for you and me is love. If you believe in him, you have no reason to be afraid. But here's the thing, and when you're not afraid, then you can move on to love, but you have to be drawing your life from that love, from his me for you love. His love has to be the love of your life. And when it is, it creates an obligation that fuels a life of me for you love for others. This is the very last thing. Did you notice the ought? It's there again in both 3.16 and 4.11. There's an ought, and that word's a debt or an obligation, but it's not the way we normally think of a debt. It's a debt of love. And I would illustrate it this way with you just to close. There were years ago we left, I was a youth pastor and we left um, the church that I was working at to, to, to travel and do overseas ministry and we were raising support uh, for our young family and were completely dependent upon the generosity of other people. And one of the families that was there who had uh, kids in our youth group, they came to us, we took us out to dinner and said, hey, what's your mortgage payment? You know, and we're like, what? We're raising money. What's your mortgage payment? And we told them, they said, well, we just want you to know we're going to pay it for the next two years. Now, I got to tell you, it was, it was probably one of the most overwhelming things, uh, just expressions of love. And, I, and I'll just go on record to say that was 15 years ago. And I'll tell you today that their love created a joyful obligation to me. I'd do anything for those people, not because I have to, but because I was so moved by their generosity that long ago, uh, that, uh, that I just long, and all of these years I've longed for whatever way I could to repay it. All of these years later, they could call me in the middle of the night and I'd fly across the country at my expense to be with them, whatever it took. But their love's not the love. Truth is, in the last 15 years uh, that have gone by, we've kind of lost our connection with one another because that's the way it goes with all loves except the love. That doesn't happen with God's love. And so here's, here's the pickle we're in. You have been made. You have not been made. Let me say it this way. You have not been made to give more than you get. You've not been made that way. And yet, loving sinners in a fallen world always requires you give more than you get. <laughs> so what do you do? If it feels out of balance... If you're in relationships where you're saying, yeah, but I'm giving so much more than I'm getting, I want to say that doesn't mean something's wrong. That's just the way it is. And here's the thing. It's an invitation to faith, to orient your life around God and his great steadfast love for you that never fails because he, he is the only one who gives more than he demands. He's the only one in all the universe and only his love can quiet your fears and give you all the strength you need. 
to look, to see, to react, to, to react compassionately, and to move out in action, to love others with me for you. Sacrificial, substitutionary love. Make his love the love of your life. Let's pray together, would you? So, Father, that's the key to unlock this part of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives uh, that we need to continue to move and live toward you, to rely and to know and to rely upon your love for us. And so we ask that you would send us your Spirit to convince us uh, that we would live with the felt love of God sitting upon our souls, that we would know know your great love, that we would have a, an intimate experience with it, that we, would, that we would have a sense of the way that it would be filling us up on the inside so that we might be people supernaturally endowed with a wealth of love that we could go in this time of fear. And, and, and because the fear in us have been, have been banished by your love to go and to banish fear in people everywhere we go, everyone we see. That's what we so desperately need. And so would you commission us to that task today? But right now in this moment, as we sing and give thanks and remind ourselves yet again of the great love, the costly love of Jesus for us, would you come and fill our hearts up until we overflow? And may our love just be the overflow of the love that we experience on the inside. Forgive our unbelief, Father. Forgive us that we still doubt your heart. Forgive us that we could be so cool and calculated and hard in the face of such costly love that you've shown to us and warm us now and make us the people that can bear fruit and glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So now as he sends us, here's his pledge. We speak these words over, over one another at the end of every service to remind ourselves that as we go, we go to live me for you, love, and it can feel, it can be exhausting, it can wear you out. Uh, because it seems like everywhere you go, you're always called to give more than you get. But here's what the Lord said. He says, go and do that. Go and live that way because with me, you will never give more than I will give to you. To me, it's it's so infinitely imbalanced in the way that God has loved us that we can go and bear the cross of unbalanced love. Uh, as we go to love others. And so receive this benediction and may, may this be the power source by which you live your life this week. If you're a person of faith, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear this word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.